if you make the analogy of a tree, you know that these three Abrahamic traditions all have very deep tap roots into the soil. Um, happened to be that tree was planted in Jerusalem, but it has spread its branches all around the world, and that we see those three tap roots as these three people of the book that the Quran, the Hebrew Bible, and the Christian Bible all share much more than you might know. If we take the time and the effort to hear each other's traditions and stories, not only is it very much appreciated by others, but it enriches our lives. And I think we have to model that with kids. Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East Edition. This podcast is a production of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about Primary Source by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Jerusalem is one of the most amazing cities in the Middle East. It's ancient, it's stunning, and it's really unlike anywhere else on Earth. In fact, over the centuries, some have even called it the navel of the world, given its significance to Jews, Muslims, and Christians, who together make up more than half the world's population. But what exactly is it about the city that makes it so special and so coveted? Well, in this episode, we're going to take you on a tour of Jerusalem to try to explain why the city is so important in the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions. We'll also be talking about how, in a lot of ways, these three religious traditions are very much connected and related. And afterwards, we'll talk with a middle school teacher to learn more about how she uses Jerusalem as a jumping-off point to engage her students in exploring these three religions with the ultimate aim of building cross-cultural understanding and combating anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. This is episode 12, Rooted in Jerusalem, the Abrahamic Faiths. The city of Jerusalem is very, very much tied up with the stories and identities that these three groups who are very important in shaping the world as we know it today these three communities put Jerusalem as a central spot and there are still buildings that evoke that sense of the of of who those people are you know Jerusalem's a big part in it we'd like you to meet our guide for today's tour through the old city of Jerusalem and the Abrahamic faiths Jonathan Brumberg Krauss, a professor of religion at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, who is also an ordained Reconstructionist rabbi. Over the past 25 years or so, Rabbi Brumberg Krauss has taught a variety of courses that touch on topics related to today's conversation, including courses on the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Like many religious studies professors, he sees these three traditions as being related. 
these three religions understand themselves in relationship to one another. And pretty much you could argue that they all come out of the Hebrew biblical tradition and they trace their lineage to the Hebrew biblical tradition. Early Christianity originally was a form of Judaism and it eventually parted. And then Islam sees itself in the story that it tells as basically God kept sending prophets to the people and the Hebrew Bible stories tell that. Usually what happens is that the people don't listen to God's message and so from the perspective of the Quran, God sent Muhammad to give the world one more chance. So the God that each of those three traditions talk about from their perspective is the same God. You ask contemporary Christians and Jews and Muslims, they may not say that. But on the other hand, Allah in Islam is understood to be the God of the Old Testament. The God who had a son, Jesus, in Christian tradition is understood to be the God of the Old Testament. Uh, the Jews, we have our own story about what happened, but we understand that we have been living in relationship with those groups. One way to characterize this relationship might be familial which is actually a recurring motif in some of the earliest stories that these three traditions share. All of our myths of origin, since I'm a religious studies professor, I can use words like that, often use metaphors of family to describe our relationship precisely to make that point, that, um, that we're related and we don't always get along, but we are related. And so our fates are inevitably tied up with one another. And the father of this family? That would be Abraham, who, according to biblical tradition, had two famous sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham is seen as kind of like a pre-founder of all of the three traditions, but then they each went in different ways. So they each kind of trace themselves back to Abraham in certain kinds of ways. So Jewish tradition traces themselves back to Abraham, that we're the family that came out of Abraham, except that the selected family from our perspective were the descendants of the younger sons, not the older sons. And so Jewish people see ourselves as descended from Isaac, um, who had the son Jacob, and then the 12 sons, and the 12 tribes of Israel, and so on. And Muslims, particularly Muslim Arabs, see themselves as descendants of Ishmael. And then in early Christian tradition, Christians who are not necessarily ethnically Jewish are viewed as being the spiritual descendants of Abraham because Abraham became a follower of God because of his faith, according to what Paul says in, in Galatians and in Romans. And so all Christians who become connected to God through their faith rather than through their ethnic lineage see themselves as spiritual descendants of Abraham. While there are some people today who see Islam, Christianity, and Judaism as being pretty dissimilar, your students might be surprised at how much these traditions actually do have in common. The most obvious is monotheism, although when the other traditions look at each other, they sometimes differ in their view of how monotheistic the other traditions are. Other things in common, we share the Hebrew scriptures as the part one of our stories. Each tradition sees themselves as offering a part two, in a sense, of the biblical tradition. Jewish tradition, we say there's a written Torah and an oral Torah, and we understand like rabbinic literature and kind of post-biblical thinking as so-called oral Torah that, according to the story, was also revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. Christians set it up as Old Testament and New Testament. 
The Quran, it assumes the stories of the Bible and it even retells some of the stories and it understands the prophets in the Hebrew Bible like Moses and the other prophets as being in the line of prophets that preceded Muhammad, although it also understands there have been other prophets that were not necessarily biblical prophets. Muslims and Jews share a religious language that is Semitic. Uh, both Hebrew and Arabic are related, so that's another commonality. One of the interesting uniters and dividers are eating rules. So there are biblical prohibitions against eating pork. And so that was a dietary prohibition that was also adopted by Muslims. So Jews and Muslims have that in common. And that often also differentiated Jews and Muslims from Christians, let's say, when they lived in predominantly Christian areas like medieval Spain, for example. Jews and Muslims and Christians have traditions of religious fasting. They do it in different ways. Muslims have Ramadan in which you fast during the day for a month, but then at night you eat. Christians have Lent, which is not a total fast, but again, it's a restriction of food. Jews have the fast day of Yom Kippur and we have other fast days as well. The other thing too that's really interesting is that Muslim ethics and Christian ethics are very related to the acts and behaviors of Jesus and Muhammad respectively. Muhammad is not divine, he's human, he's mortal, and Christians generally understand Jesus as the incarnate son of God, so he is he, he's different in that sense. But the way that they function as models for ethical behavior is kind of parallel. And, and I think that that has been noted by some comparative scholars that the way that Muhammad functions in Muslim ethics is somewhat similar to how Jesus functions in Christian ethics. It allows people to sort of personalize and allow a development of a kind of situational ethic. I mean, the Quran itself has a set of rules and things like that, but like the laws in the Hebrew Bible, you have to adapt them and apply them to new times and situations. So one of the ways that Islam did that was they preserved traditions of the behavior of Muhammad, preserved in bodies of literature called Hadith, in which you know, you'd say, well, what did Muhammad do in this particular situation? Well, that's a little bit similar to the way that even contemporary Christians will say, what, you know, what would Jesus do? Okay, so what does any of this have to do with Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is important to people of the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim faiths in part because it is generally believed to be where Abraham in the Bible prepared to sacrifice his son. According to stories shared across all three traditions, Jerusalem was also God's chosen city, or at least was for a time. Because of this status and its close association with Abraham, Jerusalem is kind of seen as a source of much of everything else that was to come. We'll talk more about this on our tour and other reasons why the city is considered to be holy in each of the three traditions. But first, it's helpful to take a few minutes to give you a layout of the city so that you can better visualize how everything fits together. Well, first of all, you will be very aware when you go to Jerusalem, there is an old city and the new city of Jerusalem. The new city is modern. That's where the Knesset is. That's where the Supreme Court is. The old city of Jerusalem is the historic one. The site of the Temple Mount is in the old city, and most of the biblically associated spots are there. For our purposes today, we'll be focusing mainly on the old city. It is like taking a trip back in time. Some of the buildings are from Roman times or Hasmonean times. And the walls for it were built by the Ottoman, Suleiman the Great, and so that's what you see. But they're also built on top of Roman walls and Hasmonean walls. And so, you know, if you ever go to an archaeological tour, you'll see that the wall that surrounds the old city has layers and different styles of stones that, um, that, that make it up. Stepping into the old city is a truly unique experience because there's really no other place in the world quite like it. 
waypoints. Here in the Old City, that you'll find the three major waypoints on our tour today, each of which is considered by many to be among the holiest places in the world. It feels very old. It's a medieval city. It's divided into four quarters, a Christian quarter, a Muslim quarter, a Jewish quarter, and Armenian quarter. You have like a lot of covered streets. There's a fantastic souk or market. Then in the middle of this very crowded place, you have the big open space of the Temple Mount. So part of it below the Temple Mount and the holding wall that holds up the Temple Mount is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And so there's a big open place where religious Jews come to pray. And then you also have this big open space on top of that where the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque of Umar are. And then like if you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is also really old and also with the different Christian groups going through it, there's also a very medieval vibe, particularly with the Greek Orthodox going with their censers. Then there's also parts of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where the Ethiopic churches, and that also has a kind of Ethiopic medieval feel. So that's the old city. We're going to visit each of these sites in the order in which they were constructed to give you a better sense of the layers of history in Old Jerusalem. We'll also be framing our discussion of these holy sites around key moments in the city's history, which will give you some essential context for understanding their significance. I'm not a historian, but what the Bible tells us is that King David, in around 1000 BCE, conquered the city from the Jebusites and made it his capital. It was already an important city, but it became the capital of the Davidic kingdom, which as a united kingdom didn't last too long. According to tradition, King David's son Solomon constructed what's now often referred to as the first temple at a place in Jerusalem known as the Temple Mount. The temple was built on the place where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so tradition understands that that is Jerusalem and that there's a rock there. The Jewish temples were huge. They were places at which animal sacrifices were conducted by a hereditary priesthood. And then a hereditary group of uh, people related to the priests called the Levites would sing songs and also attend to the priests. But basically there was a daily service of sacrificing animals, of grain offerings, wine offerings. And the whole point was that it was one place. Again, this is coming out of this Davidic Deuteronomic ideology that you shall worship at the one place which I shall choose. So when we're talking about the first temple and the second temple, it was the place where this this huge building that had a particular structure the, with the Holy of Holies, uh, they were kind of concentric circles of holiness, which depending on your status or relationship to the priesthood, you could go into or not. We're going to skip a few centuries to bring you to the next key moment in the city's history, at least with regards for our discussion today. That's the destruction of the temple and exile of the Judeans by the Neo-Babylonians in 586 BCE. When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they moved populations around, and that was kind of an imperial policy to make sure that people wouldn't have a strong national connection to particular spaces. So what happened is that when Judeans were exiled from Jerusalem in 586, there were other groups that were resettled there that may not have been from an Israelite ethnic background. But then when the Persian Empire overthrew the Neo-Babylonians, they were receptive to bringing Israelites back to Jerusalem around in the late 500s or so. And at that point, you start hearing them being called Judeans, from which the name Jew comes from. Control of the city would pass from the Persians to the Macedonians under Alexander the Great, and then to some of his successors, the Seleucids. In the 2nd century BCE, the Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem would rise up against the Seleucids in what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. 
they were successful and established their own rule of the city under the Hasmonean dynasty, which lasted in different forms for roughly a century or so. And then came the Romans. Things got uh, rough, and so they said, oh, let's invite the Romans in to, um, to, help, to, to fix things. And they invited Pompey, the, the, the famous triumvirate. And um, when you invite the Romans in, they don't ever leave. <laughs> and so they came in, and they ended up becoming dominant. They established a kind of puppet kingdom under Herod. And Herod, very, very important for Jerusalem, rebuilt in a major way the temple. I mean, you already had like these other kinds of things that were kind of rebuildings of the temple that had been destroyed in 586. But the Wailing Wall, the Temple Mount, those were all things that he built. And so that was the temple that became central to Judean identity. The Western Wall is a really important religious site for Jews. It is what remains of the second temple that Herod built, and it's not even really part of the temple. Um, Herod loved rearranging geography, and so he wanted to build the temple on this big flat area on, on, in Jerusalem, but it wasn't flat, so he made it flat, um, a, a kind of a, a artificial mesa. And so the Wailing Wall is the wall that's holding up the Temple Mount that's left over from his time, although there are parts of it that go from the Hasmonean period as well. The Western Wall today is sadly all that remains of the Second Temple Complex, which the Romans destroyed in 70 CE in putting down another revolt. They destroyed much of the city of Jerusalem too, and many if not all of the city's Jewish inhabitants were captured, killed, or exiled. For most Jewish people, therefore, the wall stands as one of the centers of their faith in history, but also as a potent symbol. The thing is that in kind of Jewish mythic history, the destruction and exile first happening in 586 and then kind of repeated in uh, in 70 became the paradigmatic mythic event in kind of Jewish identity. And so you see this is a recurring theme in Jewish stories or Jewish narratives about itself is that we were promised a land, we settled it, we were bad, our kings were bad, and so God punished us and sent us into exile and then we, we got better a little bit. God redeemed us, and then we got bad again, and, um, and God punished us again and sent us into exile, more or less. But the point is that Jerusalem became the idea of, of a loss. It's interesting, it, it pervades Jewish thinking because what's the first story in the Bible? It's the Adam and Eve story and what happens to them. They don't follow a rule and they're exiled from paradise. And so that same story is kind of retold. So that's kind of what Jerusalem is in Jewish mythic memory. Now, Christianity wouldn't gain prominence in Jerusalem until the 4th century CE, upon the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Christians also venerate Jerusalem as a holy city, in part because of its designation in the Old Testament as God's chosen city, but also because of what happened there to Jesus of Nazareth. When Constantine converted to Christianity, then Christian rule of Jerusalem became legitimate, and that was that was very significant. And the reason why Jerusalem is important to Christians is because that is where the main part of the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus happens. And Jerusalem is mentioned over and over again in the New Testament. It's the place where the bad things happened, um, but the, where the bad things happened so that so that the Son of God could be. Um, could be killed unjustly and then raised from the dead to save humanity. And so Jerusalem becomes this important place because of the history that, that took place there. 
For most Christians, the most significant holy site in the Old City is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was first built at the behest of Constantine. Today, it's a large, ancient-looking stone church that many Christians believe sits on the site where Jesus was crucified and that contains the tomb from which he was resurrected. Because of this, the church has been one of the world's great pilgrimage sites for centuries. But for many Christians, the pathway that winds through the old city to the church is almost, if not just as significant. This is the Via Dolorosa, the pathway of sorrows, the route that many Christians believe Jesus took as he headed toward his crucifixion. One thing you can't miss when you're in the old city is the Stations of the Cross. It's become a religious practice for Christian pilgrims to try to reenact Jesus' last stages before his crucifixion. It's powerful because, again, you're in this old city and it feels old and you really do feel like you're going back in time. And that's a kind of mystical experience, I think, for people doing that. And so it's become a really important part of Christian pilgrimage to actually follow the path of Jesus because, metaphorically, you're also following the path of Jesus and that's very meaningful. That is why Jerusalem became a very, very important place to Christians. I mean, plus Christianity adopted the idea of Jerusalem as being the city of God. So Jerusalem becomes like a metaphor also for Christians as being the ideal holy city. So in certain ways, that's a kind of discussion that sometimes goes on in Christian circles is, is Jerusalem the place important to us or is Jerusalem the idea of the holy city more important to us? And and you have both schools of thought. Jerusalem would come under Islamic rule for the first time in the 7th century CE, when Umar, a companion of the Prophet Muhammad, who many Muslims regard as being one of the early caliphs, when he wrested control of the city from the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire. Except for a brief period during the Middle Ages, the city would remain under the control of various Muslim empires and rulers until the early 20th century. It was under Muslim rule for a long time. Much of the interesting and significant architecture that you see was from when Jerusalem was under the Ottoman Empire, and they were under the Ottoman Empire until the British came in in World War I. Jerusalem was one of many cities that early Muslim rulers captured across the region as part of larger efforts to expand their influence. But the city's religious and political significance was never lost on them. Even early on in the um, expansion of Islam, there was a recognition Jerusalem was a holy city. And some of the earliest followers of uh, Muhammad wanted to establish as a major central shrine there. What became more important clearly was Mecca and Medina. But nonetheless, it was felt really important to establish Jerusalem as a, as a center, partly because this was God's place, but then there were very specific traditions that were associated with Jerusalem as well. One was that Muslim tradition says that Abraham, who was Abraham, was told to sacrifice his son Ishmael there. And so on that rock, from the perspective of Muslim tradition, is where Abraham didn't end up sacrificing his son Ishmael. But there is another really, really, really important event in Muslim tradition that happened there, and that is the heavenly journey of Muhammad from that spot. Secondarily, it had super political importance. For both Christianity and for Islam to establish its theological and political legitimacy, it needed to connect itself to Jerusalem. Early Muslim rulers constructed on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem one of the most magnificent mosques ever built, the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock was a political and theological statement saying that, you know, now God is blessing this community with power and beauty. And, you know, now God is going to establish his kingdom on earth through Islam. And this is going to be one of the monuments that is going to demonstrate the power and presence of the rule of God and the wonderfulness of God on earth. 
To me, that's what I think is really amazing uh, about the Dome of the Rock, is the aesthetics of it. The building is a reflection of the power and presence and awesomeness of God. And you can see that from the colors, the dramatic size, the incredible beauty, the, the words of God that are literally inscribed on it. It's amazing. It is an expression of God in stone. Of course, Jerusalem is home to many other sites of deep religious and cultural significance beyond the three places we've highlighted here, and we encourage you to explore those further. But we hope that our brief tour with Rabbi Brumberg Krauss has given you at least a little bit of insight into why the city is so special for so many people. So how do you bring all this complex content into the classroom without dumbing it down or falling back on stereotypes? For this, we sat down with a middle school teacher here in Massachusetts who shared with us why she teaches about the Abrahamic faiths and how she uses Jerusalem as a frame and a hook to do so. My name is Susan Balo. I teach at Baker School in Brookline, Massachusetts. I've been here a long time. I've been here since 1995. And I teach 7th grade social studies and sometimes English and this year 8th grade health. I think it's so important and kids are naturally curious. So besides myself and the kids wanting to know, which is always a good reason, the state does include it as part of our social studies frameworks. We're supposed to teach about the Abrahamic traditions and how Muslims and Christians and Jews are all people of the book. And what does that mean? On a personal level, as an educator, I would never skip these lessons. I think they are at the core of so much richness and so much opportunity for understanding. It's worth pausing here a moment to point out that teaching about religion is not teaching students what to believe, or whether any religions are in any way better or worse than others. We're not asking anyone to believe. That's the difference between teaching religion and teaching faith. We're not teaching faith. We're teaching a history of religious people who have a deep culture that deserves to be understood and respected. Susan typically begins her unit on the Abrahamic faiths around Passover and Easter. It's such a natural segue for all of us. You know, we have a school holiday on Good Friday, and some kids who've been to Sunday school or religious school, they understand that, oh yeah, Good Friday was the day that Jesus died, and they understand that Passover is the time when Jewish families come together to celebrate the Jewish story of the Jewish exodus. And so generally we have a good jumping off point. It's more rare to find kids who understand enough about Islam to be able to contribute in meaningful ways. But basically I start out saying, so hey guys, we have this Friday holiday and then we have, you know, sometimes our spring break coincides with Easter and what are people celebrating and why is it called Good Friday? And it's just a really nice launching off point to connect kids to the bigger world around them and to religious history and to go to this place, Jerusalem, that is holy to many people and to three major faith traditions in the world. Before she and her students dive in, she starts the unit by laying some ground rules for discussion and exploration, which helps create a conversation based on respect. We always start out with very clear norms around discussion. You know, 
pretty much here are the rules. We're going to speak one at a time. We're going to be respectful. What does respect look like? That looks like you're allowed to disagree. We're not all going to agree, but we're never ever attacking anyone. We're using yes and statements instead of no but. And we're not just raising our hand to rebut. We're raising our hand because we've listened to understand and we want to add on or build on or clarify something a classmate or a teacher has said. Um, And kids respond to those norms and they'll help you build the norms, in fact. Next, she provides some key background info to orient kids topically and geographically. So I would start first with physical maps. Where is Jerusalem situated in the world? How has it become historically an anchor city for these three faiths? And what are the implications? I would give the kids varied background reading about the basic tenets of each religion. I've also been able to use Google Maps, which is really fun. So you can zoom in physically on what this city looks like and just take a look at the physical kind of serpentine old city and talk about what made these walls and these neighborhoods so separate and how can people coexist in such a tiny place. And because she understands that many of her students do practice or have cultural ties to the Abrahamic traditions, she encourages students to personalize the conversation in ways that are appropriate and respectful. Sometimes we're really lucky because we have parents who are willing to come in and and be interviewed. That's always really fun. Holidays and food and family traditions is always a hit. And even among families who celebrate Easter or celebrate Passover or Ramadan or any holidays, there's variation. And it's fun to see how different families have different music or maybe their prayers sound a little different. And some families who are even aren't religious but culturally connect to their heritage and I would bring that in as well and ask kids to jigsaw so they're not learning just about maybe the faith tradition that is closest to them but they're they're spreading their wings and learning about other faith traditions as well. Throughout her unit, Susan incorporates a variety of voices and perspectives and primary sources. She considers this essential for pushing back against the rising tide of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic rhetoric and violence within our own society. Unfortunately, people sometimes stick on those others and make our Islamic neighbors feel somehow that they're less American or less worthy. And we've just suffered through the worst anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish violence ever in our country's history. So it is all very much, A, obviously important to teach, but B, very much modern history as well as ancient history. And we need to be vigilant that kids understand how to vet sources and how to know if a source is reliable. We can teach them to do due diligence, which is you don't just look at one news source. You look at many news sources and you compare and you do the digging to find out are these sources corroborated and where do they come from? And that work of being an informed citizenry is never done. Ultimately, she reminds us that spending time in class exploring the roots of the Abrahamic traditions helps students develop deeper cultural awareness and understanding. I guess my goal would be for kids to see that whether you're religious or not, that if we take the time and the effort to hear each other's traditions and stories and understand the frame of reference that our fellow humans are coming from, not only is it very much appreciated by others, 
but it enriches our lives greatly and helps take the weird and the ooh out of the conversation. And I think kids deserve that from us. They need to see that we all deserve to feel respected, to feel dignified. We have to model that with kids. Talking about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in the classroom is important. And using the historical city of Jerusalem as the roots of these religious traditions can help you do it well. We hope our conversation today has given you some insight into why the old city is so important to so many people, as well as some strategies for guiding your students in their exploration of the Abrahamic faiths. Learning more about these traditions can deepen their cross-cultural awareness and sensitivity and help them see that there's so much more that unites us than divides us. Thanks for joining us, and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about this podcast, our sponsors, and for free online resources that can help you teach about the Abrahamic faiths and the old city of Jerusalem, visit www.primarysource.org podcasts. And if you love this podcast as much as we do, let us know by reviewing us on iTunes. More reviews means more new listeners, which ultimately means more great episodes for you.